Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by eplindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Tuesday. It is the 10th of October. Hope you're all well and having a nice day and enjoying this delightful international break that's been gifted upon us because, you know, the one last month wasn't long enough ago and the one in November is not far enough away. So we need one now. 
Um, yeah, so international break. So no real football to be enjoying, just international dreck. Uh, speaking of international football, though, it has been confirmed today that the United Kingdom and Ireland will host the 2028 World Cup. Of course, it might not be the United Kingdom by the time it comes around because could get Scottish independence by then. We might even see a United Ireland by then. And of course, the Welsh are pushing for independence as well. So we'll see. It might end up having an extremely long name with all five countries having to be listed. Or it might just stay the same. Who knows? Anyway, uh, I've given my rant about why I don't like the fact that there are six stadiums in England when it's meant to be a a tournament held between all five countries, but obviously England having the the largest population by a considerable margin is is one of the reasons, and there's various other reasons, but it is what it is, and we'll just have to accept it and move forward. Um, It's a long way away, so we can rant about it again next year and the year after and the year after that and the year after that, and then the following year when it finally comes up, maybe we'll, we'll settle in. Uh, winners and losers from the Premier League weekend. We're going to start with our first winner, which is going to be Arsenal Football Club. The reason I have them as one of the winners is purely on the basis that they finally managed to beat Manchester City in a match that mattered. City had had a hold over Arsenal. And I don't know that that hold is broken because no Rodri, no KDB, wasn't a full-strength City team. We're missing a couple of other players as well who aren't at 100%, but Arsenal are missing Bukayo Saka. You know, so they're missing their best player as well. I think for Arsenal, just the fact that they kept going late into the game and kept trying to find that breakthrough is a big positive because in previous years, Arsenal have been a bit of a mentally weak team. We've seen that last season when they bottled the beginning of the title race and fell off. We saw it uh, the season before when they had full control of fourth place and then somehow managed to throw it away and get usurped by Spurs. Prior to that, obviously, they finished eighth in back-to-back seasons. So we've seen Arsenal give up at times. Now, we have seen them at other times come back and fight back into games, but generally against lesser opposition, teams that they'd be expected to beat, teams that they knew they were better than. This was the first time against a team that are better than them that I thought we saw Arsenal show some real mental fortitude. And I think it's a good win. Now, is it an important win in the grand scheme of things? No, because it's the eighth game of the season. So, like I said yesterday, Peter Drury getting himself all excited about how it could be critical is just a nonsense. Even with that win, they're only two points ahead of Arsenal, of City. And City have lost both of their last two games in the league. City are not in form. City have lost all three domestic games that they played without Rodri. So, we saw last year, Arsenal had a significant advantage over City who didn't really bother playing until February, and then City still kind of walked through the way to the league. If it wasn't for the fact that City took their foot off the pedal because they were focused on the Champions League having wrapped up the title, they would have won the league by 10 points. 
I expect them to win the league by in and around that this year. But again, this is a huge step for Arsenal to get a victory over a team that are better than them, a team that they're chasing, a team that they're looking to over overhaul in a Premier League season is a big thing. Uh, my next winner, I'm going to go with their North London rivals. I've got to go with Spurs. And again, it's just because of the mental toughness that we've seen. And this is not the first time with Spurs this season. We've seen Spurs fight back at the Emirates against an Arsenal team who are better than them and get a good point. We saw them come back from 1-0 down 97 minutes into a game and beat Sheffield United at home. And here against Luton, after having Basuma sent off, to continue to play their football, to continue to try and win the match and not settle for any kind of result, like to settle for a point, I think is a big step forward. Should Spurs be beating Sheffield United and Luton? Absolutely they should. But in previous years, we've seen Spurs lose these games. We've seen a mental fragility with Spurs. Spurs have always been considered a soft team. That's why they're nicknamed Totteringham. Because they wobble at the change of the wind. But under Postacoglu this year, they're looking a much more purposeful outfit. They're looking like a team that has a real identity and a real focus. And these are important steps for Tottenham as they try and build. Even the fact that they beat Liverpool. I know Liverpool were down to nine men. I know Liverpool had the goal wrongly disallowed. But the fact that Spurs kept going and going and going in that game, even when they were helpless at trying to break down, hopeless, I should say, at trying to break down the Liverpool backline, they still kept going. They still kept trying to play their football. And they eventually got the result they wanted. So these are positive things for Tottenham. And they're top of the league after eight games. Now, nobody expects that they end up top. Nobody thinks they'll finish above City or above Arsenal. I think they'll finish fourth. Which, considering they sold Harry Kane, have a new manager in place, a lot of new players settling in. Like, even though Poro arrived in January... He's still only really settling in. Edoji was signed last summer, but this is his first season there. Van de Ven is a new player. Vicario's a new player. And despite the fact that Romero's been there a few years, these are all new players around him. So it's an entirely new defensive dynamic. And thus far, it's, it's working very, very well. My third winner, I think I'm going to go Chelsea. Because this is now three wins in a row. And they managed to score four goals. And they had been so poor in front of goal this season. It was a little bit embarrassing. And they went behind here. And in other games this season, we've seen Chelsea, when they go behind, heads drop, confidence goes, purpose to the team goes, and it becomes... Very fragile. But in this game, now primarily Raheem Sterling, but also Silva 
at the back. Also Enzo in midfield. Really stepped up, took leadership positions in the team and started to drive the team forward and cajole them to do better and play higher up and be more aggressive and do the right things, make the right decisions. And truthfully, while 4-1 flattered them a little bit, Chelsea were good value for their win. So I do think they class as one of the big winners of the weekend. Then I'm going to go with Everton. I'm going to go four winners this week. I'm going to go with Everton. Everton are the only team in the bottom eight who won at the weekend. And that's two wins out of three. Now, unfortunately, sandwiched in between those wins is a defeat by Luton, which is a really poor result for Everton. But to come off the back of that Luton game, at home where they've been dreadful so far this season and had lost to Luton, lost to Wolves, lost to uh, to Fulham. To come out and put in that performance and play as well as they did, and I, I think it might be the best they've played under Dyche. They created some really good chances. They should have scored more. They got that worldie from Jack Harrison. They were aided and abetted on the first goal, obviously, by Zabarni's slip, but they took advantage of it. And that's something Everton haven't done this season. They haven't punished teams for their mistakes while they themselves have gotten punished for their own mistakes. So for Everton to get that win, it gives them a three-point gap to the bottom three. And that's big. And I'll tell you why it's big in a minute. We'll go to the, the losers then from the weekend and we'll start with Bournemouth. That was an opportunity for Bournemouth to pick up some pick up a point. They're still winless. They've got the third worst defensive record in the league. There's something a little bit unsettled about their team. They're not strong enough in midfield. They feel they feel like a soft team at the moment. And the, the loss of Tyler Adams compounds that because, as I said before, he was the one that was going to be their transition killer. He was the one that was going to protect the defence. He was going to win the ball back for them and allow the others in the team to play their football. And I still think it's far too early to be having conversations around the manager. I still think he has or should have plenty of time to figure this out. Like they're one point from safety. They're one point from Luton. So it's not like they're cut adrift at the bottom of the table. But I do think... When Everton are in the form that they're in, especially at home, you need to go there and try and take advantage of it. And they didn't. They got overwhelmed early on, shot themselves in the foot. And before they knew it, the game was as good as over. My next loser's got to be Sheffield United. One point. You're bottom of the league. You look a class below most teams in the Premier League. Now, to get beaten 3-1 by Fulham is is no disgrace. And they can point to the fact that they had it at 1-1 with 20 minutes to go, 25 minutes to go. Not even, 15 minutes to go. But it was the manner of the game 
like they could easily have been two or three nil down before half time. And instead they were very, very fortunate to go in nil nil. They do just look a class below everyone else. Them and Luton. They just don't look like they're the same caliber of team as the rest of the league. My final loser then is going to be Brentford. Now, this is harsh, I admit, but when you get to 93 minutes into a game and you're 1-0 up, the very least you need to come away with is a point. The very bare minimum is a point from that position. To concede two messy goals the way they did is really poor. Now, there's individual errors there, but that's part and parcel of the game. Not clearing your lines, not defending set pieces. Like one of the, their calling cards has been how well they defend set pieces. They should not be conceding those goals, especially at that point in the game when you've put in such an enormous shift to get that result. I think the manager will have been furious. I really do think he will have been furious to have come away with nothing after the shift in the performance they'd put in. So they'll be my third loser. Now, I want to talk about Everton and why why they needed to get those points on the board and why they need that little gap to the bottom three. So this is the strength of schedule, basically, for each Premier League team through the first eight games of the season. Um, and this is why I don't think Bournemouth and Burnley should be panicking just yet. So the team that have had the most difficult start to the season is Bournemouth in terms of who they've played and where they've played. Bournemouth top that. Second is Burnley. Third is Wolves. And having taken eight points from their start, I think they're going to be pretty happy with how things have gone. Then Nottingham Forest. And again, nine points for them, which is pretty good. Then it's West Ham, and they're in seventh with 14 points. That's a really good return. Then Liverpool. Sixth highest strength of schedule so far. Sitting fourth. They should be very happy with how things are going. Then it's Aston Villa. They sit fifth. Again, a great start for them. Then it's Newcastle. So they're, they've had the eighth hardest strength of schedule and they sit eighth in the league. So it's about chalk, about where they should be. Then it's Sheffield United. They've had the ninth hardest. Now, obviously, they're bottom. And their start has been a decent amount easier than Bournemouth and Burnley. But it does still give them reasons to maybe not feel like this is a complete lost cause. Then it's Fulham. They sit 12th from the 10th hardest schedule. Then Brighton. Now, they're 6th off the 11th hardest schedule. So that would that would fit with, you know, how, how they've done. Then it's Arsenal. Then Manchester United. Now, that's one to be concerned about. If you're a United fan, you've had the 13th hardest start to the season, and yet you're only 10th in the league. You've had an easier start than West Ham, Liverpool, Villa, Newcastle, 
and Brighton, who are all above you. Then Brentford, then Spurs, the 15th hardest, or the 6th easiest, if you want to look at it that way, and they're top. Then it's Luton. Now that maybe is one to concern them. 17th in the league, despite the fifth easiest schedule so far. Like It's only going to get tougher for them. Crystal Palace have had the fourth easiest, and they sit ninth. So that explains why they're top half. Roy Hodgson is overperforming at the moment because it's been an easier schedule. Manchester City have had the third easiest start of the season. And they sit third in the league. Now, I think they'll be a little bit disappointed that they haven't run the table because, you know, they started with six wins in a row. Then to lose to Wolves. Now, losing to Arsenal is not a dreadful result, but I think they would have liked a point. But not taking three points from Wolves, I do think is is a disappointment for them. Then we get Chelsea. Second easiest start of all 20 teams. And they're only 11th in the league. Like, that is reason for concern. I did say earlier, like, they're one of my winners from the weekend because it was an important win for them. But this is part of why it was an important win. They've had an easy schedule. It is going to get more difficult. They've got Arsenal up next. And that's a huge, huge game. But then it's Everton. The easiest schedule so far. And they've only taken seven points. Draw with Sheffield United, who are bottom. A win over Bournemouth, who are second from bottom. And a win over Brentford, who are 15th. Everton's schedule gets harder. They've got Liverpool next. Then West Ham then Burnley in the Cup, then Brighton, Crystal Palace away, and Manchester United. Then they go to Forest, which is a winnable game, but a tough game. Then Newcastle, then Chelsea, then away to Burnley, then Tottenham, then Man City. It's going to be a very, very long run to the new year for Everton. There's not many points there for them, I don't think. Now, if they could play more similarly to how they did against Bournemouth, they could definitely pick up some points. The question is, will Dyche be brave enough to stick to playing that way against good teams? Or is he only going to roll that out against teams he's pretty certain they can beat? I don't think he'll be that brave against Liverpool, against West Ham, against Brighton. That's recipes for for losing. Now, he's shown last season he has a recipe to beat Brighton. But he needs to stick to that. But he can't go on out moyes-moyes. And the long ball stuff won't work against Liverpool with Van Dijk and with Kanate or Matip because they'll just, they'll dominate Everton centre-forward. So he's going to have to come up with individual game plans for some of these games and it's a really tough run. Now, look, they could easily beat United at home. They could go and beat either Palace or Forest or both. 
They're at home to both Newcastle and Chelsea. But if they lose those two, and if they lose to Brighton, and they lose to United, that's another four home defeats. And it means that, you know, the back half of the season, then there'll be more away games. Because you're going to have more home games in the first half. If you're in the bottom half of the league, or the bottom three, come the turn of the year, and your back half of the season has more away games than home games, that's going to be really tough. Everton have have had an opportunity with a very favourable schedule to not be in the mess that they're in, to not be looking over their shoulder at a three-point gap. They should be looking at an eight to ten-point gap between them and the bottom three. Like, Yes, I would say Fulham are marginally better than Everton talent for talent, but it's not a big gap. And at home, I think Everton should be winning that game. The same is true of Wolves. I think that's about even in terms of talent. At home, I think Everton should win that. Now, losing to Arsenal at home, fair enough. You gave them a decent game, so whatever. But then to lose at home to Luton... That's really, really disappointing. And like their home games from here are Brighton, United, Newcastle, Chelsea, and Manchester City. They're their home matches until the turn of the year. And then their first match after the turn of the year at home is Villa. And then it's Spurs. Everton fans not, might not see their team pick up any points at home until February, perhaps March. Because the only other game in February after Spurs is Crystal Palace, which could be a tough one as well. And if you look at the back half of the season, like in their last, what's that, seven games, they've got four at home. But prior to that, it's heavy on the away games. They're going to have to stay up away from home unless they can turn things around at home over these next six games before the turn of the year. But would anybody be surprised if we get to January and prior to the Villa game, I'm saying, well, they've lost their last six home games. They've lost to Brighton. They've lost to United. They've lost to Newcastle. They've lost to Chelsea. They've lost to Manchester City. And then they've got Villa and Spurs to face. I don't think any be- anyone would be surprised. Can you imagine if they were to lose all of those games or take a couple of draws and not win any of them? And then you're 12 home games into the season and you've taken three points at home or five points or seven points and you've only got seven home games left. Oh, and by the way, you know, one of those home games happens to be Liverpool. That's really, really tough for Everton. They needed to make a better start than this. And I have seen some Everton fans, a lot of Liverpool fans, some United fans say, oh, well, it'll be the bottom three as it is. It'll be Sheffield United, it'll be Bournemouth, and it'll be one of Burnley or Luton. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I think Everton are in major trouble. I really do. The good win at the weekend is a good win at the weekend. But that game is now over and done with. 
they went and beat Brentford and then lost at home to Luton. And their next game is Liverpool, which is really tough. Then West Ham, then Brighton. That's three really tough games in a row. And you know Deserby will make alterations to what he saw last season against Everton. So, yeah. They need to get their act together. Right. Uh, I have been looking for something to do on Tuesday shows. And I have decided that what I'm going to do is I'm going to do some power ranking type of thing where I'm going to look at who I think are the 10 best in a position in the Premier League right now, the 10 best in that same position worldwide. My view on the 10 best ever in that position and then my five favorite all time in that position so not necessarily the best but my favorite so today we're going to start with goalkeeper okay we're going to start with goalkeeper we're just going to work our way out and i think we're probably going to do it in like a four a four four two or a four three three type of type of job so we'll start with goalkeeper we'll work our way out We'll do each position and we'll do manager at the end, and that'll give us 12 weeks of content. So, uh, assuming there's no Tuesdays that I miss, which I might miss next Tuesday, but that's by the by. Right, so let's start with our Premier League goalkeepers. So, number one in the Premier League, and I don't really think it's close. I think it's there's number one and then there's a gap to everybody else. But I think Alison Becker is comfortably the best goalkeeper in the Premier League. So I've got him one. I think two and three are close. I've got Emmy Martinez two. I think he's just the more reliable of the number two and three that I've that I've got here. I think he's been outstanding for Villa since he joined. I think he's made a good case that in at least the first the first year he was there, he was the best keeper in the league. Second season was good, but not great. And last season, I thought he was outstanding, but not the best in the league. I thought that was Allison. Now, he went on and won a World Cup last year, and he was magnificent in that World Cup. And I think when you look at the all-round package of Emmy Martinez, I think he's, I think he's definitely the number two keeper in the league. Number three, I've got Ederson of Manchester City. Obviously, he's outstanding with his feet. He's a good shot stopper. He doesn't command his box very well, and he makes more mistakes than Emi Martinez. He's not as reliable as Emi Martinez, even though he is better with his feet. And he's younger, and he's a bit more... um, He's younger, but he is 30. But he's a bit more agile than Emi. But I just don't think he's as consistent or as reliable. But... With that being said, I do think he's a, he's a good goalkeeper, not a great goalkeeper. I've got him largely because of the ability of his feet as the number three. Then I think there's a slight gap to Nick Pope. I've got Pope four. I thought he was outstanding last year. I don't really understand how he's not England's number one. He is, for me, comfortably the best English goalkeeper. Uh, number five, I've got Alphonse Ariola. I think the difference in I think the difference in him and Fabianski 
is enormous. And I think you're seeing that in West Ham, who, quite frankly, this is the best West Ham have looked under Moyes. And I don't think anybody predicted that. Considering the summer looked like it was really going to turn out disastrously, I, I think he's been absolutely tremendous. I think it drops again here. Now, next on my list is Vicario from Spurs. And it's only because it's still a small sample size in the league with him. But I do think by the end of the season, we might be looking and talking about him higher up in the conversation. Everything about him has looked tremendous so far. So all early signs are really positive. It looks like, I think it was 18 million that they paid for him. It really does look like that's turning out to be a bargain, but it's very early days and we'll see how it goes. So he's number six. And I think, like I say, he's got the the potential to certainly go above Ariola and above Pope. I think Ariola could go above Pope as well, because I do think he's a more talented goalkeeper. But Pope is so reliable and so consistent. Uh, next on my list, then, I've got David Rea in the number seven spot. And he's obviously on loan at Arsenal from Brentford. Um, it was an odd signing in the summer, considering Arsenal had just given a long-term contract to Aaron Ramsdale. But I do think Raya is more reliable. I think he's got some flaws in his game. But he's not great on crosses, for example. But he's a good shot stopper. He's good with his feet. And I just think he's got a bit more of an even personality and mentality. Now, he he looked rattled at times in that early City game. But I do think he's just a bit better in terms of focus. So I've gone with him next. Um, then I've got Jose Sa, who has been really good this season, was great in his first year with Wolves. Just a really good shot stopper. Now, there's nothing fancy about him. He's not fantastic with his feet. He's a by-the-numbers goalkeeper. But I do think when you look at the body of work, he slots in at the number eight position. Number nine, I've gone Mark Flecken of Brentford. I've been impressed with what I've seen from him so far. Again, I would reiterate, I think it's an odd signing for Brentford because there's no there's no resale value with him. But he's now established himself as the number one keeper for the Dutch. And that should see his profile continue to grow. And, and at 30, there's still plenty of room ahead of him for some more development. So all early signs are pretty good signing by Brentford. And I've been very impressed. Uh, and then rounding out my top 10, I could have gone a couple of ways here. I left Ramsdale out of the conversation because he's not the first choice at Arsenal now. I still think I'd pick this guy over him. Pickford, for me, makes too many errors. I think his concentration is really poor. Looking at the rest of the league, Neto I'm not hugely keen on. We don't have an established number one yet at Brighton. So, and it's Verbruggen is so young that I wouldn't be putting him here. I don't rate Robert Sanchez. If Dean Henderson could get fit and get a long run of games, he would absolutely be a top 10 goalkeeper. It's not going to be Kaminsky. 
It's definitely not going to be Onana. I'm not hugely fond of, of Turner at Forest. So I've gone Burnt Leno, who is limited, but he's really consistent. He's a really reliable goalkeeper. And I think he's the type who can play in either a really good team where he just has to be uber-focused and make two to three saves a game, or, you know, a, a bottom half team where he's having to make six and seven saves a game, where he's busy all the time. I think Leno can fit into either of those categories, as opposed to Aaron Ramsdale, who, when he was at Bournemouth and Sheffield United and was facing a lot of work every game, was pretty poor. He suits Arsenal a bit more because of his ball playing, but then he's still a bit of a liability because his focus isn't great. So he gets beaten on chances he should really be doing a lot better with, on shots he should save. So I've gone Burnt Leno as my number 10. I've got Allison, Emmy Martinez, Ederson, Nick Pope, Alphonse Ariola, Vicario, David Rea, Jose Sarr, Mark Flecken, and Burnt Leno. I think that's fairly accurate right now. Best in the world? I think you're again starting with Alison Becker. I think, again, you've you've just got to acknowledge just how good and how consistent this guy is. And even in a team last season that was dreadful, like truly, truly dreadful, he stood above as the best of the best, a genuinely world-class goalkeeper. And what separates him from the rest for me is there's no weakness in his game. Allison is great in all aspects of goalkeeping, whether it's shot stopping, whether it's 1v1, whether it's crosses, command of his area, organization, or his ability to sweep, to come off his line real quick, and his ability to play out. I just think he's the best goalkeeper in the world. I think he stands above everybody else as the best goalkeeper in the world. I think he has done for a few years now. And, you know, this is a guy who in 2019 was the best FIFA goalkeeper, won the Ashen Trophy. The year before that, he was the Serie A goalkeeper of the year. He's been Premier League Golden Golden Glove winner twice in a very attack-minded team. Did also score, of course, Liverpool's goal of the season in 2020-21. In now, he's been overlooked in the PFA Team of the Year a couple of times last season, for example, 18-19, for example. He's only been in it once. That's an outrage. He should have had at least three. But he's made a great start to this season as well. And for me, and I'm basing this on body of work, not form, for me, he is the clear number one. Number two, then, is Thibaut Courtois. Now, he's obviously out at the moment, and he's going to miss most, if not all, of this season with a torn ACL. And Thibaut Courtois is a phenomenally good goalkeeper. He has everything you'd want in terms of the size, the builds, the reflexes. He's got incredibly good feet, not in terms of playing the ball out, but in terms of how quick he can readjust to get himself in the best possible position to make the save. You rarely see Thibaut Courtois beaten and think 
he probably should have saved that one. Just doesn't really happen with him. I think he's a model of consistency as well. So Thibaut Courtois for me will be number two. Uh, number three, I've gone Jan Oblak of Atletico Madrid and Slovenia. I think up until probably two years ago, I would have said he was the best in the world. I think he's the best shot stopper on the planet. I think he's got the best reflexes of any goalkeeper that maybe ever. He's fearless. He's great 1v1. He's a good penalty saver. He's not great on crosses. I would say he's average on crosses. And he's below average with his feet. But as a goalkeeper, he is phenomenal. So he's number three for me. Uh, Number four, I've gone Marc-Andre Ter Stegen of Barcelona and obviously Germany. Any other country, this guy has 100 caps. He has been incredible for most of his career. He was outstanding with Borussia Mönchengladbach. And if you were following me back then or listening to me on podcasts, I was banging the drum for Liverpool to sign him from 2012 onwards. He goes to Bar- to Barca in 2014. It takes him a little bit of time to get settled. The first two years, he's predominantly the cup goalkeeper. <clears throat> but no surprise to anybody, they win the Champions League the first year he's there, and he's outstanding. The second year he's there, they win the Copa del Rey. They, would, they won in the first year as well. So when he played, they were great. Finally gets into the team. And he was outrageously good for for four years. Then he had a really bad fall off. 2021, he was dreadful. 21-22, he struggled the first half of the season, I would say. And then started to find form. And I thought last year, he was absolutely outstanding behind a young defence that was new, was unsettled. I thought he was that calming presence that just organized, talked players through the game, and he's great with his feet. The only flaw is he does have a tendency to come for crosses that he's not going to get near. That's the only knock on him. Uh, So he's number four. And number five, I've got Mike Magnon of AC Milan and France. Again, I think any other country, he's already at about 40 to 50 caps. But because it was France and because Hugo Lloris was the captain, despite the fact that Mike Magnon has been better than him for a long time now, Lloris was keeping his spot in the team. But Mike Magnon is incredible. Good with his feet, amazing reflexes, good organizer, good talker. I think a couple more years and he's rising this list. And I think he's pushing into the top three maybe even the top two. I think he is the all-round goalkeeper. I think Milan are so fortunate to have him. And it's not a surprise to me that, you know, he's at at Lille, they win the league, he leaves, they fall off, he joins Milan and wins the league again. Back-to-back league titles, two teams, two leagues. Last season, he missed a lot of games through injury. And Milan in the league were not a, sh- not, a, not a patch on what they'd been the year before. Now, if you saw at the weekend, he got sent off. I disagree with the sending off. I think he wins the ball. And then Oli Giroud came in, <laughs> played in goal, 
and made a made a decent save. Did did really well. But Mike Mannion is is to me, he's a top five goalkeeper. Next on the list, and it's it's getting tougher to have him this high, but I, I still think his body of work warrants it because he's an all-time great, is Manuel Neuer. Now, if you look at his career, he was great with Schalke, incredible for Bayern for six years, and then he had the ankle injury, and then he fell off. And for about two years, he was a bit of a liability there. And then he had this resurgence, and he was brilliant for two years. Like, genuinely brilliant. And then last season, in great form again, gets injured, and we haven't seen him since, and we don't know when we're going to see him again. But I still think he is absolutely warranting of a spot in the top 10. I know that sixth might seem high, considering we haven't seen him in the best part of a year but I still think he warrants it based on who he is and what he's done. Uh, and we'll talk more about him in a bit. So uh, I've got Emmy Martinez then, number seven. Again, it's it's about consistency. I think he's just more reliable than the guy who's next on the list, who's out, outrageously talented, but a little bit inconsistent. So I've gone Emmy Martinez at seven. And then I've got Gigi Donnarumma at eight. In terms of sheer natural talent, he should be top two, top three. So he has everything. He's huge, dominant. He's good on cross. He's a great shot stopper. He's good reflexes. He's decent with his feet. He's a good organizer. He's got an incredible amount of experience for a fella who's only 24 years of age. He's already played 333 senior, senior matches, 251 for Milan, 82 now for PSG. He's also got 56 caps already. Like he is closing in on 400 career appearances. He's 11 shy of that. He's 24 years of age. The problem I have is there are times you watch him play and he just looks like his mind is somewhere else. When he is focused like he was at the Euros, he's unbeatable. When he's not, he can be a little bit of a liability. But I still think at 24, you'd bet on him to figure, figure the kinks out of it and establish himself as the best in the world. He's a lot younger than pretty much everybody else on this list. I think the next youngest might be Mike Mannion. I think it's Mannion, who's four years older than me. No, I'm not. Sorry. My, my number 10 is only a year older, but he's not as good. But of the guys over him, Mannion's the only one who's not 30 and above. So Don Ruma has plenty of time. Uh, at nine, I've gone Ederson. Feels high, but when I went through, I think he's ninth. I think he's the ninth best keeper in the world. And then number 10, I've gone Gregor Kobel of Borussia Dortmund. 
Swiss international, only 25, plenty of experience, came through the Hoffenheim Academy, having been picked up from grasshoppers in Switzerland. Never really got the chances at Hoffenheim. Had a couple of loans, Augsburg and then Stuttgart, and made the permanent move to Stuttgart. Did very well there. Gets brought on to, to Dortmund. And I think he's very, very good. I really do. I think there's, I think there's huge promise there for what he might be in two to three years. I think he'll be a big sale for Dortmund. I know he signed a new deal there just the other day to keep him at the club till 2028. I wouldn't be surprised if he's moving on within the next two years for 40 million ish. So that's my top 10. Allison, Thibaut Courtois, Jan Oblak, Marc-Andre Terstegen, Mike Mannion, Manuel Nauer, Emmy Martinez, Gigi Donnarumma, Ederson, and Gregor Kobal. I think that's my top 10. Now, top 10 of all time. This one might be a little bit... Right, I've, I've had to put certain parameters in place on this for myself. So let me explain those. So I wanted to be able to talk about these goalkeepers and not not be going on what other people have said. I've seen and what other people have said. I wanted to be able to go on what I've seen, so I can speak from my own opinion. Now. With some of them, obviously, we're talking all time, but not really all time, because Lev Yashin is widely seen as one of the greatest, if not the greatest goalkeepers of all time, right? Lev Yashin retired in 1970. I didn't see him play. I've seen two or three games in decent enough quality maybe 10 to 12 overall for club and country. It's very difficult to make a real judgment on what Lev Yashin was or wasn't. Now, there's no doubt, based on how highly he's still regarded, that he was a great goalkeeper. You don't accomplish what he accomplished, the first and only goalkeeper to win the Ballon d'Or, without being... Great. However, I didn't see enough of him. So what I've done is I put myself a starting point of 1970, which is the year he retired, and a minimum number of games played in decent enough quality to actually be able to see what's going on of 25. So 25 games that I've seen, one way or another. So in in, in some of these cases, or in a lot of these cases, it's going to be obviously footage or or you know recordings of those games um so that's that's how i've got 1970 to now which is what will be 53 years 25 games minimum that's what we're going to go with so the best goalkeeper i've ever seen is gg buffon i think he is the best goalkeeper who's ever lived even on the games i've seen of yashin i think gg buffon is the best keeper who's ever lived a career that spanned from 1995 to 2023, 28 years as a senior professional. 
176 caps for the Italian national team and a model of consistency across his career. We've had other goalkeepers who have these incredible runs of like four and five and six years. And people will say, well, that's the best we've ever seen. But Gigi Buffon was from 1998 through to 2015, undeniably world-class, undeniably world-class for that length of time. The only years you could knock him on were 05-06 when he hurt his back and he missed half the season and the following season when he played in Serie B because he was loyal to Juventus. So you could maybe ding him on those two, but his performance level was still incredible. And at the end of 05-06, prior to that season in Serie B, he won the World Cup and was tremendous. So I think, I think for me, Buffon is the one I would always go to. And when I look at the success he had, it's undeniable how good he was, how important he was. But I don't like to judge players based on team success because I don't think that's any real any real way to judge. If you look at the Serie A best goalkeeper, he's in 99, 01, 02, 03, 04, 05, 06, 08, 12, 14, 15, 16, 17. Now, bear in mind, in that era, he was up against Francesco Taldo, who's very unfortunate not to be making my top 10 because he was great. And if Francesco Taldo had played for any other country in the world, he would have been their long-term number one. Gigi Buffon was perfection as a goalkeeper. The size, the agility, the reflexes, the mindset, the focus, the organization. I'm going with Gigi Buffon as my number one goalkeeper of all time. Number two, I've gone with Manuel Nauer because I do think there is a case to be made that there's a couple of Manuel Nauer seasons that are above the very best seasons of Gigi Buffon. However, he does not have the consistent longevity of being world-class year on year on year on year that Gigi has. Now, he was world-class for a long time, but not as long as Gigi. So that's why I've gone for him as my number two. I I, I don't think there's any reason really to go into Manuel Nair and how good he was. I think everybody should be aware of how good he, how good he has been in his career because he's still playing. My number three is Pat Jennings. Watford, Tottenham, Arsenal, Everton, 119 caps for Northern Ireland. I'll tell you how good he is, or how good he was, because he's not playing anymore. He's 78 years of age. This is how good he was. He is adored by both Spurs fans and Arsenal fans. He played for Spurs until he was 32. Having joined in 1964, he played till 1977. He joined Arsenal because Spurs thought he was finished. Spurs thought he was starting to decline. He was Arsenal's number one for the next eight years. 
until he was 40 years of age. At Spurs, he won an FA Cup, a couple of League Cups, and a UEFA Cup. At Arsenal, he won the FA Cup. He didn't have the great success that certain others did. He didn't win a raft of league titles. But what he did win, and this is why he stands out for me, in 1972-73, he was the Football Writers Player of the Year. Just think about what it would take now for a goalkeeper to win that award. In 1975-76, he was the Players Player of the Year. Again, think of what it would take for a goalkeeper to win either of those awards. He won them both in the span of four seasons. Longevity, reflexes, an amazing shot stopper. Would pluck balls out of the top corner and hold on to them. Seemed to have glue on his hands. Incredibly brave. Amazing 1v1. Also scored a goal in the Charity Shield in 1967. But I, I just think Pat Jennings is is just one of those goalkeepers who, who needs to be remembered because I think he's one of those who paved the way for what modern goalkeepers are now. So I've got him at number three. At number four, it's back to Italy. It's Dino Zoff. 1982 World Cup winner would go on to manage the Italian national team among other teams that he managed. But Dino Zoff played for Udinese, Montavo, Napoli and then Juve. And it's Juve that he's best remembered for 1972 to 1983. Again, you're talking about a goalkeeper that had amazing ability to pluck shots out of the corners. Only six foot, but great agility Huge, huge athleticism. Season after season of consistency with Juventus. Winning six league titles in his 11 years there, 12 years there, maybe. 11 years there, six league titles. Won two Coppa Italias, won the UEFA Cup, got to two Champions or European Cup finals as they were back then. Was the starting goalkeeper for the Italian team in 1982, was also in the Italian squad in 1968 when they won the European Championships and when they got to the final of the 1970 World Cup. So his longevity is undeniable. I think for me, he's number he's number four. I think when you look at body of work, you look at the style of play. Like, he he was a fundamentally perfect goalkeeper. He's always talked about for his positioning and his ability to catch the ball. Unlike a lot of later Italian goalkeepers who developed the, the knack of coming and punching the ball and just looking to get rid of it, not taking the risk. He was someone that worked endlessly on catching the ball and having that solid hand, like hand placement on a ball. There was, there was very little flashiness about him. It was all about footwork fundamentals. So when he would make those amazing saves, when you watch them back, you can see how he's made them. You can see it's a process with him. He's not relying on one thing. So, you know, sometimes you see goalkeepers, especially smaller goalkeepers who are, you know, at 5'11 to 6'1 sort of range. And they're 
solely reliant on their athleticism. And Shea Given would be a good Premier League example of this. Once the athleticism goes, they're just not a very good goalkeeper anymore. With Zoff, he was able to play until he was 41 at a really high level because his fundamentals were so perfect. And the next guy on my list, I think, falls into the exact same category, and it's Peter Shilton. Now, <clears throat> Peter Shilton, <clears throat> the gentleman I have zero time for. Peter Shilton, the goalkeeper, was incredible. And again, you look at the longevity of his career. He made his debut for Leicester in 1966 and spent eight years there. Then went to Stoke for three years. Nottingham Forest for five years was part of the Brian Clough team that won two European Cups. Then spent five years at Southampton and five years at Derby and three years at Plymouth. He didn't retire till 1997. He won 125 caps for England, which was a record at the time. I think Beckham and maybe Rooney have beaten that since. Um, You just look at the longevity, though, and how many games he played year upon year upon year. Never got injured, never missed a game, rarely put a foot wrong. And even, you know, late in his career, you'd look at Italian 90 and look at the, the, the goal that beats him in the World Cup semi-final. It's a fluke. It's the free kick that hits Paul Parker's calf and loops up in the air. And you watch Shilton backpedal and there's no athleticism left. But you watch any of the games in that tournament and he doesn't look like an old man because his fundamentals were so good. In that moment, in a freak situation, then he looked like an old man. Then he looked like he should have been gone. And there's an argument made that he should have been gone prior to Euro Euro 88 that Chris Woods should have been in the team. And I would make that argument. But Shilton from like 86, he was great. Even then, 86, he was 36 years of age. You go back to 84, 82. Peter Shilton was just consistently incredible for years and years and years. And if you go back and watch some of those Nottingham Forest teams that he played in under Clough and watch how good he was in those European Cup runs, it's just just absolutely amazing. PFA Team of the Year, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. PFA Players Player of the Year in 1978, another goalkeeper to win it. The only, the other, the only other one aside from Jennings, who won it. So for me, uh, I've got Peter Shilton at number five. Uh, number six then is the goalkeeper that he battled for the England shirt with, the goalkeeper who replaced Pat Jennings at Tottenham. It's Ray Clements, Liverpool. And Spurs started off at Scunthorpe, moved to Liverpool, 14 years at Liverpool, and would go on. Actually, he didn't replace Jennings directly. There was someone in between for a few years. But regardless, he would go on to Spurs and and have an extended career, would play seven full years at Spurs. Um, only won 61 caps, but that was in large part because of the presence of David Seaman. Gordon Banks at the start of his career, Seaman then, through the guts of it, should easily have won 100 caps. Ray Clemens was an amazing goalkeeper and he was he was everything you could want in terms of a shot stopper. He was the Jan O'Black of his day. Brave, agile, 
great athleticism, great spring, great anticipation, would be would be sailing towards the top corner before the ball would have left the striker's foot or the bottom corner or wherever it was. Just knew where the ball was going to go, had that knack. Uh, Ray Clemens for me, number six. Uh, number seven, then, I've gone for the man who was the best goalkeeper in the early days of the Premier League. It's Peter Schmeichel. Now, I think in the modern game, Emmy Martinez is probably the closest to him. But Emmy what isn't as physically big, even though Emmy's huge. Schmeichel just seemed so big. He just seemed like he was two humans. Incredible agility. Like, he played netball. No, not netball. Volleyball. And he learned these different techniques, that star, starfish jump thing. I think he played handball as well, Olympic handball type of thing. And he learned these different techniques and he married them to football somehow. And it was just, he was so, so good. And whenever he played for United, you didn't feel like you had much of a chance. Even towards the end, like when he joined United, he was 28. And even well into his 30s, He was, he would just had this presence as a goalkeeper. He was probably a little bit overrated because you could get, you could beat him with shots low close to him. He'd struggle to get down to them. But 1v1, he was unbeatable. Crosses, he was incredibly dominant. He was decent with his feet. Not that he was asked to do it very often, but he was decent enough. But he had this presence and this aura about him. And when he wasn't in the United team, they felt massively beatable. So I've gone for Peter Schmeichel then at number seven. At number eight, I've gone for who I believe is the greatest Belgian goalkeeper of all time, Jean-Marie Pfaff, who spent his career with Bavarian in Belgium, moved to Bayern Munich, spent six years there. 64 caps of the Belgian team between 76 and 87. Now, some people would go Michel Prudhomme, Prudhomme who replaced him in the Belgian team. Uh, but I think he's the better of the two goalkeepers. So I've gone with him. Had great success across the board. Won a league title in Belgium. Won three uh, Bundesliga with Bayern was part of the Belgian team that was the runners-up at Euro 1980, finished fourth at the World Cup in 86, European Cup runner-up in 87 with Bayern. Uh, Just, again, another one that was, he was flashy though. He was more flashy than some of the others. Quick reflexes. It didn't look like he should have as well because he was quite, not heavy, but stocky, like um, meant to be nuts by all accounts, meant to be absolutely off his rocker. Um, but everybody adored him. Very fondly thought, talked about great shot stopper, great penalty saver. Um, I, I would have him at number eight. I would have him at number eight. Now you could convince me to put my number nine over him. My number nine is Seth Meyer. And prior to Manuel Nauer's era, this is probably the greatest goalkeeper Germany had ever produced. 
this guy was a freak, an absolute freak. This guy was, was again, very All Black-esque, very similar to Ray Clements and how he played. Played for Bayern from 62 to 1980, was part of all of their success in the 70s, won three European Cups, won the World Cup in 1974, was Footballer of the Year in Germany three different times, which is an amazing achievement for a goalkeeper, was named in the FIFA Top 100, which was actually 125 players by Pele. He's in the Bayern all-time 11. Now, I think if that gets redone in the next five years, Manuel now probably edges him out, but just a, a remarkable goalkeeper. And incredibly consistent. Incredibly consistent. Truly, truly a great goalkeeper. My number 10, I've gone Iker Casillas and I'm not happy with it, but and I feel like it's massively influenced by the fact that I watched his entire career. I know Iker's not one of the 10 best goalkeepers ever, but I've I've put him in because I saw his entire career. I watched his debut. I saw him a bunch of times live. I saw literally start to finish Real Madrid through Porto, his entire Spanish career. Watched him grow from a, a fella who was all arms and legs and seemed to have no real control over what else he was do- what he was doing with his limbs, but would somehow claw the ball out of the net to this model of consistency who was really good with his feet, really good sweeper keeper became an absolutely adored figure in the game. Somehow he's still only 42. He looks, looks 25, 30 maybe. Just endlessly young. Incredible. A truly incredible goalkeeper. Again, I don't think he's top 10 all time, but I've got him top 10 for me. Uh, so there's that. The last bit then is my five favorite goalkeepers. Of all time. So number one is Gianluca Pagliuca. I I just adored him. Watching Serie A when I was a kid. Watching him for Sampdoria, then for Inter, then Bologna, where he had probably one of the best spells of his career, despite the fact he was 33 going there. Then that final season at Ascoli. He was a bit mad. He was a great shot stopper. Made spectacular saves. And when you're a kid, that's kind of what you like to see is these spectacular leaping saves had ridiculous reflexes and very even keel would make mistakes but with him he just didn't let them bother him he just got over them could play as a sweeper keeper as well so was more than happy to have his defense play high and he'd sweep behind them again could often lead to mistakes but it is what it is um so yeah, I've got him. I've got Gigi Buffon as my second favorite goalkeeper of all time. I've got Alison uh, Becker as my third favorite goalkeeper of all time. Number four, I've gone for Oli Khan, who I just loved watching, largely because I thought he was an absolute head case and vi- liable to start a fight at any point. So I've gone with him. Brilliant in the 2002 World Cup, like absolutely incredible. And at that point in time, he was the best goalkeeper in the world. And it's not debatable. At that point in time, he was the best goalkeeper in the world. He'd won the European Cup in 2001, was brilliant in that run for Bayern. 
went to the that World Cup in 2002 was just was just different class, absolutely different class. And then obviously got to the final and, and couldn't do enough to keep them uh, to get them past Brazil. Did I say they won? I think I might have said they won. They obviously came runners up. He couldn't do enough to help them beat Brazil, but he was literally carrying them to that final. Him and Michael Balak. And then Balak missed the final suspended, which was really unfortunate. Um, so Khan is number four. And my number fifth one is Rustu Rekbar. Now, it, this is really close. And I think I might do a joint fifth. So I loved Rustu Rekbar. He was just, he was mental. And he was phenomenal with Fenerbahce. And back in the 90s, you didn't see a whole lot of Fenerbahce. You saw them in the Champions League. The games were madness because of the fans and the the, the the atmosphere. He went to Barcelona. It didn't work out. He went back to Fenerbahce. Then he ended up at Besiktas. It's afterwards that I've seen a lot more of him than I did even during his career. And I loved him during his career. Great for Turkey. Was also incredible at that 2002 World Cup was the second best goalkeeper at the World Cup after Oli Khan, and but was brilliant, genuinely brilliant, great shot stopper, always in the right place, big guy as well. A six two, I would have said a bit. I would have said he was taller than that, but he certainly played bigger than that. And finally, then Vitor Bahia of Porto, then Barca, then Porto again. I, it was just something about him. He was a great shot stopper. Again, I think like Paluka, he made made flashy saves and made big spectacular saves. I think that might be it. But yeah, so my, my five favourites are Paluka, Buffon, Allison, Khan, and Rekbar. And it's not based on their ability, it's just based on how much I enjoyed watching them. And there you go. That is that. I will take a break when we come back. We'll just do the gossip. And if there's any news, we'll do that and we'll get out of here. See you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, uh, it has been confirmed, obviously, you'll know by now that the UK and Ireland will host the 2028 Euros. Uh, Eden Hazard has announced his retirement from football. Um, I, I, I'm, I'll do more on Hazard later in the week. I, there's, there's a lot to dig into with him. I, I don't think he ever realised his full potential. I think he should have been so much more. And I think it's an awful shame that at 32 years of age, he's retiring. But the move to Real was a disaster. He's had a bunch of injuries. So if he's decided it's just not worth trying to, you know, get through all that recovery, then that's absolutely his decision. I just don't feel like he lived up to his potential. Not with Real, not with Chelsea. The player that arrived at Chelsea from Lille, I think should have become a lot better than what he ultimately became. Even though even though there were seasons when he was sensational. Um, We're still pretending, apparently, that the reason Arsenal threw away the title last season is because William Saliba got injured. Um, I think if you were to take a quick look at the games he missed, defensively, it wasn't really the issue for Arsenal. They were conceding goals at about the same rate. It was a couple of games they couldn't score goals in and a couple of games they frankly just threw away because they bottled them. I don't think he would have made much of a difference. They're not conceding goals at some drastic level when he's not in the team. Um, is he 
is it a big step down to go from him to Rob Holding? Absolutely it is, of course. But him getting injured is not the reason they didn't win the league. It's just delusional stuff. Uh, but Kyle Saka has been ruled out of England's next couple of games through injury. And that's it. We'll just do the gossip and get ourselves wrapped up for today. <clears throat> Former England striker Wayne Rooney has agreed a deal to take over as Birmingham City manager on a salary which is three times more than what John Eustace was making before he was sacked by the championship side. Now, I don't know why I was of the opinion that Birmingham were struggling. Birmingham are sixth. They'd won back-to-back games. They'd had a dip. They'd won back-to-back games. They're sixth in the league. They're in the playoff spots. They're two points off third. Now, there's a considerable gap between the top two and everybody else. It's eight points from Ipswich, who are second, to Preston, who are third. So I'm not really sure why John Eustace has been sacked. I don't know why I thought he was struggling there. He clearly turned things around. Manchester United are willing to subsidise Jaden Sancho's 300 grand a week wages in order to offload him if he continues to refuse to apologise to Eric Ten Hag. How are United's ownership putting up with Ten Hag's antics? Uh, Manchester United want to sign 19-year-old Benfica midfielder João Neves with club scouts keeping an eye on the Portuguese midfielder. Manchester City have also shown interest and could beat their rivals to signing him. Portugal forward Cristiano Ronaldo has told Al Nazir manager uh, management he wants to renew his contract until 2027 because he wants to play in the 2026 World Cup. He shouldn't have played in the last World Cup. He is now holding back that national team. There are an immense amount of talented players that should be in that national team thriving and they cannot thrive while he's in the squad. Because as long as he insists on being in the squad, he is going to play because he's too disruptive not to play him. And it's like playing with 10 men. And he plays only for himself. Brazil forward Vinicius Jr. is yet to sign a new contract with Real Madrid. And his current contract runs out next summer. Now, I think it's 2025 his contract runs out. Let's see. Vinicius Jr. contract expires, doesn't stay on transfer market, which is unusual. If his contract runs out in 2024, he is going to have some ludicrous offers because everybody will want him. Chelsea will allow Romelu Lukaku to leave for about 37 million next summer. Um, They would have taken less than that this summer, so that doesn't really make any sense. Sporting Lisbon could make a move to bring Eric Dyer back to the club in January or when his contract at Tottenham runs out. It is long forgotten that Eric Dyer came through the academy at at Sporting, having been born in England, moved to Portugal as a child and grown up in Portugal from the age of seven and didn't move back to England then from, he was there for 13 years moved back to England in 2014 to join Spurs and was capping and then the following year. Um, where else are we? What have we got next? Bayern Munich honorary president Uli Honus said 
the club paid eighty two million pounds to sign Harry Kane rather than the eighty five plus add ons that was widely quoted. I wouldn't really believe Oli Hunas. Um he will always say things that he thinks make Bayern sound better. Napoli president Aurelio De Laurentiis is ready to stick with under pressure manager Rudy Garcia for the time being. He is dreadful. Rudy Garcia is dreadful. Uh, Graham Potter is one of three names along with either Tudor, Igor Tudor and Marcelo Gallardo that Napoli could point if they decide to replace Gallardo, uh, replace Garcia. Gallardo is the obvious choice to go for. The obvious choice. Manchester United are in talks with 25-year-old English fullback Aaron Wan-Bissaka about a new deal. Uh, yeah, he said had no good season since joining, but give him a new deal. Why not? Diego Simeone has verbally agreed to sign a new deal with the Spanish club. This is from the spoofer who does this. He claims, oh, this deal is agreed, and then they don't sign it for four months. And he says, no, no, I revealed it four months ago. It's been agreed since. It's just, it's utter horseshit. He just makes things up. Uh, he plays the percentages because it, at some point, Simeone will sign a new deal, and he'll just claim he was the first one with the news. Juventus defender Federico Gatti will extend his contract with the club until 2028 after returning from international duty with Italy. Former Manchester United and England midfielder David Beckham will be offered an, advi- an an ambassadorial role at the Old Trafford Club if they're taken over by Sheikh Jassim bin Hamad Al Thani. I would imagine there's got to be some conflict there because he's a, a part owner of Salford, isn't he? And he's definitely a part owner of Inter Miami. I think he's still a part owner of Salford, unless he's sold. I don't think he did. Project 92. No, he is still he is still one of the owners of Salford. So I don't see how he could possibly take on that role at United. It, there's a clear conflict there. Uh, French club Bordeaux are uh, want to appoint Albert Riera, former Liverpool winger, as their new manager and are in talks with his current club in Slovenia to release him from his contract. So good for him. That's a good step up. Right, that'll do, folks. I will talk to you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. No, I won't talk to you tomorrow. I will talk to you all on Thursday. So Thursday, sending questions for Thursday if you get a chance. And then Friday, we're going to do Nostalgia Day. And we're going to focus on the World Cup in 98 and Euro 2000. So it's largely going to be towards that French team of Zidane, Henri, Vieira, Desailly. A good bunch of lads. See you Thursday. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.